Good afternoon and welcome to Redneck Radio, a podcast for hunters. Now I'd like to start off by apologizing for missing last week to those four or five faithful listeners who were eagerly anticipating my upcoming podcast. And the reason that I didn't do a podcast last week is because I was guiding a lion hunt. You know, eventually we caught a lion, but it took a couple days. And the problem wasn't an absence of lions, but the problem was an excess of lions. There were so many lions up in the mountains that the dogs had a hard time zoning in on the big lion. So we had a lot of crazy moments where we would be chasing a bigger tom, and he would go into a group of lions, and the dogs would emerge from that group chasing a female or a young tom. So we had day after day of disappointment not because there were no lions about, but because there were too many lions and we were having a hard time following the tracks of the bigger lion. Now, I've talked about lion hunting before, and and you know how I feel about it. It's one of my favorite hunts that I do. However, the killing of the lion feels less sportsmanlike than most hunts. It feels more like a gangster executing a fellow rival on the streets of a big city than it does shooting a game in the wild. And so it doesn't really necessarily have that big, strong hunting vibe like you might have if you're hunting a black bear with a recurve bow which to me is like the ultimate hunt, you know, shooting some kind of predator with a recurve bow. Whereas you could basically go up with a handgun, uh, and if the tree was short enough, you could cock that handgun sideways like a gangster out of Compton, and, you know, you could uh, bust a cap in his ass, as they like to say. And that's one of the few hunts where you could actually execute an animal in the style of a gangster. Whereas in most cases, you have to be quite stealthy and quite proficient with your weapon. But when it comes to lion hunting, I kind of feel like, you know, it's great to see that lion, but the kill itself, for me personally, isn't as spectacular. I love seeing them in the tree, and I love the whole pursuit. And we followed the the line that eventually we did hunt and shoot. We actually pursued for a very, very long time. When I looked on my watch, we had chased him for eight miles. And this is the crazy thing, is that I got out of the truck early in the morning and started following the track with just one dog. And it's kind of interesting to get into the head of a lion because he just seems to wander around. At times, it feels like he's almost wandering around in an aimless manner. And and the the dog human team is actually a great team for lion hunting because you know when the dog loses the scent because the track is too old the human can come in with his eyes and when the track disappears visually well then the dog can pull out his nose and so by using that kind of human dog uh, companionship teamwork whatever we were able to chase this lion down over eight miles and two different groups of lions that we bumped into and eventually treat it and it was it was a great great uh, day however I must admit that by the end of the hunt, I smelled something awful. Uh, I had wet, I mean, I smelled like a wet dog, wet lion, uh, you know, lion blood, then four or five days of sweat on some of my clothing. And if you had gotten a whiff of me, and there is a lot of talk about the strength of pheromones, you know, in dating and whatsoever. Uh, but I feel like if you had caught a whiff of my scent, if a female had caught a whiff of my scent, uh, the reaction would not have been one 
of, you know, passion or romance, but most definitely would have been one of revulsion and vomiting because I smelled something awful and my truck smelled pretty bad for three or four days afterwards. So that's why I missed uh, my podcast last week, but I'm here now and I hope to make up for it with a great show. Now, my first story here is about Colorado lawmakers who have okayed a bill allowing hunters to dress in pink. So what this is saying is, well as wearing hunter's orange, you will now be able to wear a fluorescent pink. Before I get into this story, I just want to point out that I hate hunter's orange. I hate having to wear orange. First of all, the orange covers up the beautiful and expensive clothing and camouflage that I wear when I hunt. And now I, I know that buying Sitka and QU is mostly for dress up, but I appreciate the fact that I have paid so much and I hate the fact that I have to cover it up with a hunter's orange vest because that just basically ruins the whole reason behind the camouflage. Well, I might as well, might as well dress like my grandparents and go out hunting in a flannel and blue jeans. But that's just one of the many problems I have with Hunter's Orange. And the other thing I hate about Hunter's Orange is I hate it for the same reason that those who love safety love it. And that is other hunters can see me. Now, the reason this is a problem, if you haven't figured it out on your own, is that when you are stalking an animal, you are visible to everybody else on the mountain. And a lot of them can extrapolate through your, you know, your current path. They can kind of figure out where it is you're headed. And if they're quick and they've got a good pair of binoculars, they can seize upon the same animal that you're headed towards. Now, a couple of years ago, I was hunting on the side of a mountain. And just below me was a road heavily populated with hunters. I mean, they were driving up and down road hunters like crazy, which is a whole nother beef that I have. So anyway, I was slowly stalking towards deer, and I found a really good buck, uh, but I was 400 yards away, and I had to slowly make my way to around 200 yards where I felt comfortable shooting it. And the whole time, I was visible to every single person driving on that road. And if they had wanted to, they could have stopped and taken, you know, a 600-yard shot or a 800-yard shot, which is crazy. I would never take a shot that long. I'm not good enough. I'm not... Uh, you know, the American sniper, but they could have stopped their vehicle and shot it, but I had to keep my orange on. And there I was like a beacon on the hill advertising to anybody who wanted to look up there that one, I was stalking, which they could have inferred by looking through their binoculars and seeing me creep along underneath the brush. And then all they had to do was kind of follow my trajectory and figure out, Oh, Hey, he's going to that big buck bedded down in the brush there. And I just, I, I hate Hunter's Orange. But anyway, these lawmakers in Colorado, they're one step closer to making pink uh, a hunting color that you can wear. And there's a couple reasons why there's this push for pink. First of all, women are joining the hunting ranks at great numbers. When you have people like Eva Shockey hunting, and she's promoting hunting, and she's actually, I would say she's one of the strongest forces out there for me, females in hunting. She's been able to get a lot of clothing uh, out there for females who hunt, and that was just the very first barrier. 
was that there was no clothing for women in the hunting world. They had to wear their dad's or brother's hunting gear. But I feel like Eva Shockey and her you know, fellow female hunters, they've really made it possible for a lot of women to hunt in clothing that's comfortable to them. And the, the next step is they want to wear pink, which I guess, you know, by wearing pink instead of hunting orange, you're able to maintain some of your uh, femininity. Is that a word? Maybe I just made that up. But maybe they want it so that you can identify, oh, there is a girl hunter right there. Maybe I will uh, give her first opportunity on this buck. Whereas if maybe you saw a hunter in orange going towards deer, you might be like, oh, there's some dude. Um, I'm going to jump in front of him and, and get this buck. So maybe it'll help us, you know, remain gentlemen on the mountains. But uh, there was a study that helped motivate these people to pass this bill. And a quote from someone talking about this study says, A scientific study by a textiles professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison compared blaze orange with fluorescent pink. He concluded that it is as good, if not a better color to wear while hunting. He suggested that it might actually be a better color to wear in the fall season because pink would stand out more against the yellows, browns, and oranges of fall foliage, end quote. Now, that's actually something that I've thought about quite often when I've been out hunting in orange. If you have a blazing orange leaf foliage type of setup, I've always felt like the blazing orange that we wear, or hunter's orange, might not be good enough. But the question is, good enough for what? The whole idea of hunter's orange is that we will be able to see other hunters and not shoot them, which is kind of insulting to hunters if you think about it. They make us wear a ridiculous color so that we don't shoot each other in the mountains because they assume we're too stupid to really check and see what it is that we're shooting at or what it is that's beyond what we're shooting at, which also, if you think about, it's kind of crazy because the situation in which you'll be able to not only see a deer who's maybe 200 yards ahead of you, but also see 200 yards beyond that deer, I mean, and a hunter in that area, that, that's kind of crazy. Even with Hunter's Orange, it's going, to, it's going to be hard to see a deer and then whatever is beyond it. Only in like, you know, perfect optical situations are you going to be able to see the hunter who's beyond the deer. So they make us wear orange. Because, you know, it makes them feel better about themselves. And they also don't think that we're good enough or smart enough to avoid shooting each other without Hunter's Orange, which is kind of insulting. And just one last thing. If safety is your biggest concern, and that's why you make us wear hunting orange, well, then I think that it might be better to ban the use of alcohol during hunting or during the hunting season if you want hunters to be safe and not shoot each other. I'm not saying I'm for that. I'm just saying that to me, that would do more to protect hunters than making them wear a ridiculous color only found during the Halloween holiday. And the reason this law was passed in Colorado is because, you know, they want people to have choices when they go out and buy uh, hunting colors. And, and they want something other than hunting orange. You've got to be able to go out and get uh, hunting pink now. And the, these people in Colorado are trying to make that right. But they're not the first. Right when they had passed this bill, it looks like uh, in Wisconsin, the governor there, Scott Walker, he had just signed a bill into law that would allow people to wear fluorescent pink as an alternative to hunting orange. So my next question would be, will hunting pink be available for me to wear? What if I want to wear hunting pink? Uh, is that going to be an option? 
I mean, I'm not saying I will. I'm just curious if men will be able to wear pink. Because maybe my with my skin tone, hunting pink might look a little bit better than hunting orange. And I really want to look my best uh, when I'm out hunting. Because that's like one of the very first rules of uh, being out hunting in, in this day and age. You got to look good every time you go out. So just, you know, that's a question for the future. Will that hunting pink be available for men? Also taking place this week is the Safari Club International in Las Vegas. And as predictable as the rising sun, this event has brought on many protesters. And by many, I mean two dozen, which actually isn't that many at all. That's just kind of like a couple mosquitoes in your face that you swat at. But there was, however, an online petition that uh, wanted to get rid of the event altogether, and it had 72,000 signatures. So that's something, but those are all internet warriors who do nothing more than just kind of put in an email address on a petition, which if you think about it, is probably the lowest form of active uh, activism you could probably take part in. So anyway, the convention's going on. It's going to end on Saturday. And of course, these protesters are out there trying to get things changed because they don't agree with the uh, sale of exotic wild safaris and the shooting of exotic animals. And they have some very interesting quotes uh, in this article I read, quotes from the protesters. And I I just want to read one of my favorite, and that's from Martin Edwards. And he believes that the federal government needs to get involved in regulating the hunting industry. Well, Martin, this really shows your ignorance on the subject because the federal government does regulate the hunting industry. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and just assume he means international hunting, which, by the way, I don't know if the federal government can regulate other countries' hunting, but I would just off the top of my head say, no, they cannot. So you are an idiot for thinking that the government doesn't already regulate the hunting industry. And I don't know if this newspaper, the Las Vegas Sun, published your quote in order to embarrass you, or if they actually believed that what you said was true, that there was no uh, federal regulating in the hunting industry. Now, another great quote from one of the protesters out at the Safari Club International said that, and I quote, It's so adolescent to be killing animals for trophies anymore, given the state of the world as it is today. Well, I'm going to tell you right now that in Africa, if these animals were not being killed for trophies, they would just be killed. The people who live in the countries with lions, they don't want the lions around. And if there was no value on the lion, then the lion would be extinct in those countries because they're just a nuisance. And so trophy hunting in some countries is the only reason that a lot of these animals still exist to this day. They're the only reason that they're being protected by the governments, which are unbelievably corrupt. And someone, I'm assuming the spokesperson for the Safari Club, uh, can be quoted saying that the group, meaning the Safari Club, does much more for the conservation of species and habitat than many of the misguided policies that these protesters would like to see supported. And that's true. And that's something that a lot of these protesters just don't understand. And they don't understand it because they don't understand hunting at all. They don't even understand how it works. The fact that that guy wants the government to get in to regulating the hunting industry It's just crazy to me because the government is, you know, elbow deep 
in the hunting industry. That's why I have to put in for a lottery every year. That's why I have to go read a book every year before I do my hunt because the rules constantly change, areas constantly change, and that's all either state, local governments doing, and in some hunts, federal governments uh, doing. So these protesters standing outside the Mandalay Bay, they're just wasting their time because their ignorance automatically excludes them from any kind of constructive dialogue that may take place between an animal rights person and a hunter. You're just too stupid to be talked to. There were a lot of liberal websites and news organizations writing about what they would call the atrocious Safari Club International Convention. And one of these was Salon.com, which is a pretty big liberal website. And their headline for their article says, Cecil the Lion Died in Vain. Demand from Rich Hunter Still Driving Exotic Big Game Business. First of all, Cecil the Lion did not die in vain. I mean, if you just look at the economic impact that that one hunt probably had on the local economy, you know, paying for the guides, you know, the guides' family receiving the money, the institutions receiving the money, the people who had to uh, mail the animal back home, the people who got the meat. Obviously, Cecil didn't just die in vain, even if you just take out all of the hunting aspects of it. There were a lot of people who benefited in positive ways from the death of Cecil the Lion. However, the article goes on to talk about a couple things that I found to be interesting, and that is that those protests that took place during the uh, hunting of Cecil, they had an effect. As ridiculous as they may have seemed to us in the hunting world, they actually worked. And they worked because they got some airlines to block the transportation of animals that have been killed. They also got the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to declare that lions in Central and West Africa will be listed as endangered. And they also got stricter criteria for the import of live lions and lion parts like heads, paws, or skin. So those protests, as ridiculous as you may think they were, they were effective. So maybe next time when there's this outcry, you know, over something that we think is just ridiculous and stupid. We might want to pay some attention and maybe come up with a strategy for counteracting it because it does have an effect, and little by little, they will chip away at your freedom to hunt. So I'm just going to throw that out there. I'm not trying to do some fear-mongering, but I just want uh, people to think about it uh, when they see these protests taking place and realize that these types of protests, as stupid as they may seem, can have an effect on hunting. Now, at the very end of the article, they make a pretty good point. And this is something I made, I think, in my last podcast. And it it says, after all, if these wealthy hunters are really in it for the love of the outdoors and conservation, do they need, as the society's Wayne Parcel puts it, to fill their dens or private museums, get their names in the record books of Safari Club International, and brag to their buddies that they've killed the biggest and the grandest of creatures on earth. Now that's something that I talked about last week. And that is the whole, you know, say one thing but do something else. A lot of hunters go out there and they talk about meat and conservation, but then they post the videos on YouTube and then they have their trophy rooms. Now, my, I don't have a problem with trophy hunters, and I don't have a problem with trophy rooms. I actually love walking into a well, you know, a well organized trophy room. I think that they're super awesome. I wish I had one. But the problem is, we're not doing anybody any favors by using this line. This kind of, this, you know, we throw them, we throw them a bone. 
in a way. We throw these animal rights people a bone by saying that we're all about conservation or meat. It actually feels a little bit like when you tell a child that there is Santa Claus, and then suddenly they realize that there is no Santa Claus because they catch a dad put in the presents under the tree. You know, these people are beginning to realize that it's not about conservation for some hunters. It's not about meat for some hunters. And they're a little bit upset because they've been told that that's what it's all about, when obviously every sign points to something else. So I don't know what the new hunting line should be. You know, I'm not one of those people smart enough to figure that out, the talking points that we should use, especially those who do trophy hunts. But I definitely think we should stop saying that we are conservation hunters or meat hunters when we're most certainly not. And that only applies to a small group of the hunting population because the majority actually do hunt for those reasons. But for those few who hunt for the YouTube videos and for the trophy rooms, will you please just stop using that bullshit that you hunt for conservation or you hunt for meat because all signs point to the fact that that's a bunch of crap and that you mostly hunt because you want bragging rights and because you're in the dick measuring contest of the hunting world. And I've said it before and I will say it again. You are not, you are not doing anybody any favors by sitting there and pretending like you hunt for meat or for conservation. All you're doing is hurting all of those who actually do hunt for those reasons. But when they go to talk about it and use that argument in the face of some crazy animal rights person, their argument has half the strength it would if you just removed yourself from the discussion altogether. And at the end of the day, I'm just upset that I can't go to Africa and that I can't go to the Safari Club International and that I can't do all these things. And I take it out on the trophy hunters. And I'm sorry. I mean, there's nothing wrong. I just cloak my jealousy in a trench coat of self-righteousness. So having said that, let's move on to the last bit that I want to talk about. And, and, you know, I want to talk about Instagram. I recently signed up for Instagram. And I just felt like, you know, everybody keeps talking about it. And everyone says that that's a place to kind of stay in touch with hunters and what hunters are doing. And I kind of felt like that wasn't necessarily the case. I I felt like following hunters on Instagram is kind of like watching a movie. It's a twisted version of reality. It doesn't really paint the real picture of what the average hunter has to go out there and do. According to Instagram, every deer that is shot is just a trophy animal. Nobody's posting pictures that I've seen, and I'm sure there are those who have like one or two friends posting pictures of two points that they've shot. But as far as I I can tell, everybody is posting pictures of ginormous animals. I mean, where the hell are all these 200 plus inch deer hanging out? Because I sure as hell do not see them when I go out hunting. I might as well be looking at pictures of Irish elk or, you know, a minotaur or a winged pegasus uh, being killed. Because as far as I'm concerned... All of these animals that these people on Instagram are killing, they are mythical beasts because I I do not see these things. And, you know, I'm as likely to see a 250-inch buck as I am to see a winged horse pooping Skittles. That's how I feel about Instagram. You know, the first little bit that I've been on it is that it just gives this distorted view of reality that makes me, frankly, feel inadequate. As far as I can tell, every hunter is successful and that they shoot uh, the biggest animals or they always get their 
bag limit. And here I am, you know, I didn't get anything last year. I didn't see anything old enough to shoot, but Instagram is telling me that everybody's out there all the time killing all the biggest things you could imagine. Now, I feel like when you download Instagram, maybe they should email you some anti-anxiety medication because suddenly with the help of Instagram, I feel like I'm the worst hunter in the world. And it feels like I've downloaded a virtual sledgehammer that is smashing my very real self-confidence to pieces. And now the worst part is that shed hunting season is coming up and nothing makes me more anxious than shed hunting season. And already I'm seeing people post pictures on Instagram of sheds that they are finding or have found. And this is the problem. If you're posting a picture of a shed that you found last year, but you don't state that, Like some guy posted a picture of a bunch of brown elk sheds without saying, oh, you know, I'm looking forward to elk shed hunting. He just posted them wanting us to believe that through some miracle of miracles, those elk dropped their sheds. If you're doing that, you are only hurting me. I mean, physically, my blood pressure is through the roof when I see pictures of sheds being dropped. And I know because I watch deer that, you know, some of them have in fact dropped, but the majority are still carrying both sides or at least one side. And I know the elk haven't dropped at all, but I have to look at these pictures and all of a sudden I start to think that I'm wrong, that obviously I'm not a great shed hunter, which I am naturally. And I got to tell you, Instagram has really been a horrible thing for the you know the short time that I've been on it and I know I shouldn't look at it you know I, but but I can't help but look at it it's as if I'm the guy in, in the horror movie you know you know that guy who hears or sees something terrible and he decides to go check it out and everybody in the movie theater is like no don't go down those stairs or don't look behind that door uh, but the guy does it anyway, and it ends up destroying him, and nobody's surprised. Yeah, he seems surprised when at that moment when he's being devoured, he's like, oh my gosh, who knew that this terrifying noise in this dark, unlit basement surrounded by paranormal activity, who knew that that was going to destroy me? I mean, it's as if he thought that all that movement in that dark, unlit basement was just a cotton candy machine, you know, that was running with the lights off. And when he ends up being destroyed, he can't believe that it was a poltergeist. And that's me. And this is the thing with Instagram. Every time I open this app, I can't help but peer down into that dark, unlit basement of humanity. And eventually, I just go down the stairs and check it out. And I see pictures of a shed. I click on it. Then I get the details. And then I feel like I should be out on the mountain right now because someone else is finding a 200-plus-inch deer shed that, uh, you know, maybe I had a chance to find. And it's just infuriating having to live in this day and age. It used to be, I mean, 15 years ago, nobody shed hunted, but those who did had no idea what others were finding. So they felt pretty good about the fact that they were finding, you know, a couple sheds here or, you know, a couple, a shed of this size or that size. But now it's just a gigantic global competition. And that's all because of the help of Instagram. And you know what? It just kind of pisses me off that someone told me to download Instagram because now I can't stop looking at it, but I hate it at the same time. And I don't know if this is pretty common. Most people probably don't feel this way. Most people probably get along with the rest of humanity and they don't have this competitive spirit. But especially when it comes to shed hunting, I feel like Instagram is maybe going to kill me 10 years earlier than I would have without it. So anyway, those are my thoughts on Instagram. 
you can check me out. I post some of the pictures that I take when I'm out and about. That's Thaddeus underscore Stotch, you know, on Instagram. And thanks for listening to this week's podcast. I hope that it has been enlightening, that your brain has been enlarged. Please tell your friends and feel free to leave a great review on iTunes for our podcast. That's how we get popular. Or even better, you know, write a good review and leave a five-star rating. And check out our blog if you want any of the links to the articles we talk about or you want to watch any of the videos we discuss in this podcast, go to our blog at redneckradio.blogspot.com. And that's where we keep all the information we use when making this podcast. Again, thanks uh, for joining us this week, and we hope to see you next week.